In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Josiah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Bekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjishab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and, and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be a deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said here, then, O house of David, is it too little that you weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning that, Father, you would instruct us uh, in your ways, Father. And, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would enlarge our hearts as you do so, that, Father, you would take us uh, to the significance of all of this, Father. Open this text up to our hearts, Father, that not only would we understand, but that we would receive a, a word of grace that empowers us uh, to follow you ever the more closely, to love you more deeply, and to uh, adore you uh, afresh. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, 
here we are again. We're one week away from Christmas, and I suspect we're all saying the same things that we said last year when we were one week from Christmas. <laughs> Where did the time go? I can't believe it's Christmas. Or maybe we're already over that because we've been saying that now for a couple of weeks. But uh, today we are indeed exactly one day away from Christmas. And every Christmas we, we see a lot of things that are, are familiar. And uh, we see a lot of scripture passages that are familiar, don't we? Like Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We see that every, every year, don't we? Uh, and we see many verses like it every year. Now, I have a question. And before I ask the question, listen, the question is not... It's not meant to make any of us feel stupid, please. I, I almost got rid of this because I'm afraid. I'm like, if I ask this question, people are going to be like, well, I can't answer it. Why can't I answer it? You should be able to answer it. Don't, don't go there. But just think with me for a minute, and I'll make my point quickly. We've been hearing Isaiah 7.14 for a long time, haven't we? We've been hearing it. We've been reading it. We've been seeing it. Let me ask a question what is the context of it? I mean, and in what way is it a sign? We're told that therefore the Lord will give you a sign. How is it a sign? And in its original context, who is it a sign for? And in what ways is it a sign for us today? In other words, what is the significance of it? Now, if you're struggling to answer those questions, listen, I'm not answering, I'm not asking you the question uh, to make anybody feel bad. If I were to ask this question to a, a group of first year seminary students, I wouldn't expect them to be able to answer this very well either. What I'm trying to point out is that every year we come to these passages, we read these passages, but we never stop to like look at the greater context in which these passages come from. And when you're, here's a question you'll answer really well and really quickly. When you're studying a passage of Scripture, there are three things that are important. What are they? They're context, context, and context. And what I want to do with this sermon this morning is I want to develop the context that this great passage is put in. And I think that with God's grace, as we develop this, as we begin to see this, uh, we're going to feel the force of this afresh this morning. That's my prayer, that we'll really feel the force of this afresh. You might be surprised to know that this beautiful text that we celebrate at Christmas time actually comes uh, really at a time of crisis. It comes in a time of crisis. Uh, and I might even add it comes in the context of a faithless crisis, a faithless crisis. In verse 1, if you look there with me, you'll see that the kings of Israel and, and, uh, and Syria, they're together, they're in cahoots. Uh, what are they up to? Uh, well, they're devising plans to go south into Judah and destroy Judah, uh, uh, conquer it, uh, kill Ahaz, its king, and set up their own king, uh, whom we're told uh, Tabiel was the king they've decided that they wanted to to set up in his place. Now, if you know anything about the history books, you'll know that Ahaz was a wicked character. He was indeed uh, quite the wicked scoundrel. 
Uh, he, he was a, a son of David for sure. He was reigning on David's throne uh, and he was king over the house of David. You'll notice that phrase in our text, the house of David. That's simply the, the, the covenant people of God. That's the people of God. And notice how they respond in verse 2 to this crisis. We're told there that when the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, what happened? The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook. And we're told that they shook as the forest shakes before the wind. Their hearts are anxious, their hearts are fearful, and their hearts are full of dreadful worry. Now, we can stop and make application already, can't we? Uh, here's a, an important spiritual principle, namely, there's a relationship between anxiety and unbelief. It's just, just this relationship. As unbelief becomes more and more prominent, so will anxiety. It's uh, it's a simple spiritual principle. Uh, King Ahaz was a wicked character. He worshipped the gods of the nations around him. In other words, he worshipped what was fashionable to worship. Um, that's what he was up about. And and Ahaz, uh, uh, you know, uh, he certainly was no one to be uh, to be modeled. And uh, the people of Judah followed after him. Uh, they followed after him. If you turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, in the, in the greater context, describes the hearts of, of the house of David in, in great detail. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3. There we're told, uh, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And if you look at if you look down to verse 12, you'll see that their worship services were assemblies of hypocrisy. Uh, they were just going through the motions while their hearts are far from God. Uh, and this is certainly a, a, a warning for all ages. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12, when you come... Uh, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? And if you look sometime this afternoon, you look at verses 10 to 15, you'll get that, that whole indictment right there. Uh, turn to chapter 2, verse 8. Now there we learn something else about the worship at the time. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And chapter 3, verse 16, commenting on the ladies of the day. Uh, this is the, the la many of the ladies of the day. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, The Lord said, The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. <laughs> I once heard Alistair Begg comment on this verse, and you know what he said? He said, This sounds a lot like the local mall. It looks like a snapshot of the local mall. You know, <laughs> thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> it's really not funny, but <laughs> then why are we all laughing? 
They were into their stuff. I mean, look down to verse 18, just a couple of verses away. The Lord promises to take it away. He says, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarfs, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, nose rings, festal robes, mantles, cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils, the cars, the trucks, the houses, etc., etc., etc. Right? So they were materialists. They were into their stuff. Now from this limited sampling of the context of Isaiah, we see that they were a faithless bunch. Uh, a faithless bunch. And because they were faithless, what happens to them when crisis comes? They're collapsing. They're, 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 they're... Look at verse 2 again. That's his Isaiah 7, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. When the house of David was told Syria is ganging up on him, the heart of Ahaz, the leader, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Well, no wonder they were shaking. You know, your truck can't save you, can it? Your house, all your stuff, it's not going to save you. Many people today are shaking to the core in anxiety. I know this because I've counseled some of them. Uh, I've counseled people that were shaking and, uh, to, with anxiety to the degree they were so paralyzed they hardly leave their house. And the answer, of course, is faith. Um, and, you know, really, when a person is in that shape, they're actually more in touch with reality than when they're just going through life aloof. To walk through life aloof in unbelief uh, is... To be comfortable in unbelief is to be completely disconnected with reality. At least people who are anxious realize something's wrong. So, yeah, you got good, you know, you got good reason to, you know, you talk to somebody that's really anxious, question them about their faith and see where they're, they're at with their faith. And if they're not really demonstrating that they have much faith, then what I often will do is say, well, you got good reason to be nervous. I mean, you got every reason to be nervous. I mean, what are you going to do? Your gods can't save you. They can't save you. Notice how gracious God is. Look at verse 3. I mean, given all this faithlessness, you know, that we just read about, that's the context of chapters 1 through, through 5, and even it, that the whole thing begins uh, in, in chapter 6, you know, after Isaiah's call, you know. Isaiah's called to go to this people and to preach, and they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to believe you. Their hearts are going to become dull and heavy. I mean, this is the context and then you come to verse 3 in chapter 7, and the Lord says to Isaiah, Go to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is really gracious. God is sending Isaiah to talk uh, with Ahaz. And this location here is significant. Notice that he is to go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. What is significant about that? That's where the water department is. This is the water department. And you see, when these armies, when they come in to attack Jerusalem, you know what they're going to do? They're going to circle Jerusalem and they're going to lay a besiege against it. They're not going to allow anything to go in or anything to come out. So Ahaz is quite wise to get out there and try to do what he can to protect his water department. Because without water, they're going to perish. God graciously sends Isaiah out to meet Ahaz, deliver these gracious words. Look what he says in verse 4. And mind, keep in mind who God is sending Isaiah to talk to. This is a faithless bunch. 
But God is still gracious to them. He says, listen, be careful. Verse 4, Isaiah 7, verse 4. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You know, the Lord is attempting to comfort them, isn't he? He's telling them not to worry about this stuff. Their plans are going to fail. Look down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Speaking through Isaiah, God assures Ahaz that Syria and Israel aren't going to succeed with these plans. They're, they're not going to succeed. This is an incredibly gracious act, given the fact that Ahaz, Ahaz is a king who is defiantly rejecting uh, the Lord. And, um, and again, without faith, there's no comfort. You know, without faith, there can be no comfort. There's only going to be anxiety. But notice God goes even further. If you look down to verse, verses 10 and 11, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heavens. You know, here God is offering a, a miraculous sign. Uh, to Ahaz. He's, he's offering this sign. He's saying, ask anything. Let it be as deep as the grave. That is what is meant uh, uh, by Sheol. Uh, let it be as deep as the, as the grave or let it be as, as high as the heavens. Let, let it be either. And, you know, when faced with difficult circumstances and difficult situations, I mean, I think most of you would probably love to have a sign from God. Imagine God coming to you and saying, here, I'm going to give you a sign. You ask anything you like. I'm going to give you a sign. Just, just, he could be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens, anything. Just, just give me the word. Here's the sign. You'd probably love to have it. How does Ahaz respond? Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, on the surface of this, this sounds quite righteous, doesn't it? I will not try to put your righteous and reformed look on, you know. I won't put the Lord to the test. I know, not me. He's clearly alluding to a a well-known passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. Uh, Massah is meant for us to recall Exodus 17 where the Israelites are wandering through the desert. They begin to grumble. They begin to put the Lord to the test. You can read about that story in Exodus 17. Alec Matur, who uh, went to be with the Lord this past August, is an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament scholar that I, I greatly, greatly uh, admire. I love his books. In fact, uh, here in 2016, he produced a and I'm glad he got it done before he went to be with the Lord. He produced a uh, devotion on the Psalms. Incredible, incredible devotion on the Psalms. But Alec Matir, he comments on this. His comments are, are, he puts it so well that rather than offering my own, I want to share his with you. It's a lengthy quote, but I'll take you through it step by step here. He says, quote, Ahaz refuses to put the Lord to the test and thereby shrouds his unwillingness to face the spiritual reality of the situation in a veil of piety. What does all that mean? It's kind of a fancy way of saying, listen, there's a real scoundrel under here who's trying to appear as being real righteous on the outside. That's what he's saying. Uh, Matir continues, there is indeed a sin of testing God. It is sinful to test God. Essentially, it is the sin of unbelief. Characteristically, it says, I will trust if God proves himself trustworthy. You hear that? 
This is, in essence, what we're saying when we're trusting. Oh, Lord, if you're out there, just uh, cause a snowflake to land on the end of my nose. Then I'll know you're there. That's crass unbelief. That's great unbelief. It, 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 uh, characteristically, it says, I will trust if God proves himself trustworthy, or I will not believe unless God so proves himself. Matir continues, At Massah, according to Psalm 87.7, the Lord tested his people. According to Psalm 95.9, they tested him. His test was whether on the basis of all his recent past care, they would now trust him in a fresh threat. And again, the context of this is Israel had just been delivered out of Egypt. You know the stories, all the plagues, you know. Uh, you can see the Sunday school uh, posters on the wall. They have each plague, you know, the frogs, the gnats, and all that stuff. Uh, they had just brought Israel out of um, out of Egypt, and God has miraculously parted the Red Sea, brought them across. They've had all this care, and now God is testing them to see in the face of a fresh threat if they will trust him or not. Now, their test, their test, uh, continuing with Matir's work here, their test was to suspend belief. This is the way they're testing God. They're doing away with their belief. They're doubting the goodwill of God. And Matir continues to ask a sign in this spirit is proof that one does not believe. It treats God like a performing animal with faith as the sugar lump rewarding the trick. But to refuse a proffered sign is proof that one does not want to believe. Doesn't want to believe. Pious though his words sound, Ahaz, by using them, demonstrated himself to be the willfully unbelieving man. And since he would not believe, he could not continue. This was the moment of decision. Just as the Lord loves to be trusted, so unbelief is the unforgivable sin. End of quote. The response warrants a deep reflection. I mean, Ahaz has no interest in receiving Isaiah's word. And this is not because he's without evidence or without proof or without logical argumentation. God would have showered that upon him if he would have taken him up on the sign. It's simply because his mind is made up and he doesn't want the Lord. That's why he does not receive God's word because he doesn't want to. And he knows it. It'd sound terrible if he said, you know, if he said, well, you know, I'd, uh, forget the sign. I, I don't want the Lord. That wouldn't sound too good. So instead he says, ah, far be it from me to put the Lord to the test. You know, this makes me think of a talk I gave at a coffee shop a number of years ago. It was um, around Easter time. So I prepared a brief devotion on uh, the resurrection and I went to this coffee shop and there wasn't a whole lot of people there, but there were people there and, and uh, there were children there and they had their Easter, Easter baskets, you know. And I proceeded to talk about the resurrection and, and uh, I wanted to include the kids in the talk, you know. I wanted to try to, because they're just sitting there and they, 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 they weren't understanding. So I, I wanted to bring them into the talk and I, I said to the kids, I said, kids, I have, I have a question for all of you. And of course they parked right up and I said tell me what is Easter all about and all at the top of their top of their little lungs they yelled Easter bunny 
I said, Easter Bunny, is that what Easter is all about? And of course, we had fun with that for a few for a few minutes. I said, you guys, uh, you guys love the Easter Bunny. And I'm doing this for a few for a few seconds and I'm having fun with these kids and I'm not really paying attention to their parents, but their parents were getting impatient with me, actually. And I finally, I said, we, I said to them, I said, you guys love Easter bunnies? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to teach you a word. I got this word. It's a really long word. It's the longest word you probably ever heard. It's a really long word. It's got all kinds of letters in it. I mean, when you stack them letters all together, it's this big. And I'm having lots of fun with the kids. And I said, it's the word resurrection. Can you say that with me? And we're going through this thing, you know, and uh, we're having fun. And at once... Uh, uh, some of the uh, parents, I'd, I'd ask the children if they'd ever heard that word, and, and they're, they're shaking their heads like, no, you know. And at once, several of the parents chimed in, and they're kind of, they're kind of uh, uh, reprimanding their, their children, saying, you have heard that word. I've told you about that word. And, and, but they continued. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, it was painfully obvious these kids had never... They'd never heard about the resurrection. And all at once, I didn't see this coming, but the, several of these parents grabbed their youngsters, grabbed the Easter baskets, headed straight for the door. And as they're headed for the door, they're giving me this, if looks could kill, I would have been dead on the spot. And they're scolding me. I have told them about the resurrection. And out the door they went. Now, I'm thinking at this point, this has got to be one of the highlights of my speaking career, especially in public. This is suck, boy. Boy, we... We, boy, we just knocked the ball out of the park. I mean, I felt terrible about this. I felt like this was one of the biggest flops. I mean, really, I mean, I'm like, is this something I want to continue to do? I'm not sure I want to ever do this again. It haunted me for weeks. It haunted me for weeks. Um, but as I study the prophets here, I see it in a different light. I think Isaiah could have easily felt as though his talk was a big flop. I'm not sure he did. Ahaz has no more interest in the Lord than those parents had in the resurrection. After all, they didn't stay to hear any more about it. <laughs> and it was the same kind of talk I always give. I mean, I've been doing this really the same way for a long time. They just weren't interested. And there's so many people out there that pay lip service to Jesus. You know, on the outside, they pay lip service to Jesus, but on the inside, the hearts are so far away from Jesus. This is a dangerous place. This is the context. This is literally the context. Now, I don't know if Isaiah felt he had flopped or not, but what I do know is in verse 13, his temperature begins to rise. Isaiah says to the people of God, Hear then, O house of David. See the exclamation point? Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You see, they crossed the line with God there. They, 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 they rebelled one too many times. You remember last week I brought this up in our last message in Romans, Luke, finishing chapter 1. I told you there's this line in the sand, you know. It's a line that pastors don't know where it is. Biblical counselors don't know where it is. Even as sinners, we don't know where it is. But we can cross that line in our stubborn rejection 
And once we've crossed that line, there is really no point of return at that point. Well, here we are. Ahaz and his countrymen had crossed it. And then here comes our famous verse. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I think now we're in a position to begin to see some of the significance of this. I mean, at the start, we could say this. We could say, you know, God's kind of saying, okay, as you don't want to sign. Okay, house of David, you don't want to sign. I'm going to give you one anyway. I'm going to give you one anyway. Now, the question that immediately presents itself is how is this a sign to King Ahaz and his countrymen? How is this a sign? Now, to, to answer this question, we have to be somewhat familiar with how God gives signs. Uh, Moses, the, the story, the, the, the narrative, the early narrative in, in Exodus of God's dealing with Moses gives us great example. You know, you know, in the beginning in chapters of Exodus, we read about Moses being called in Exodus 3. God calls Moses at the burning bush. And he calls Moses to go to Pharaoh, who's the, arguably one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. And what is he to do? He's to go there. He is to demand that Pharaoh let his, his slave population go free, which was largely Israelite. It was largely an Israelite slave population. Now, the Israelites are building Pharaoh's cities for him. And they're doing it labor free. And you think Pharaoh is going to just say, oh, okay, well, all right. Well, thanks for your service. And, uh, uh, you know, toodaloo. Uh, that's certainly not going to be the case. And Moses realizes that when he goes back to Egypt, uh, Moses is no stranger to Pharaoh and his palace and to all of that. He was raised there. And he realizes that when he goes back, that the, the Israelites aren't even going to believe him. You know, you imagine, I'm gonna go, I haven't been there in 40 years. I'm going to go back and just tell everybody, hey, you know, here I am. God sent me. Yeah, right. And Moses, you know, God, God's, God gives Moses a sign. God says to Moses, in chapter 4, verse 2, what is in your hand? Moses says, a staff. God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And you've seen the movie. What happens? When he throws it on the ground, what happens? It becomes a serpent. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a, st a staff. It returned to a staff in his hand. And there's another sign that Moses has given. God says, put your hand in your cloak. Now pull it out. And his hand was leprous, wasn't it? Now take your hand and stick it back in and pull it back out. And it was clean. Now, these, this type of sign was meant to foster belief in the hearts of the Israelites. In other words, as soon as Moses shows up and he says, I've been called by God to come and get you guys and get you out of here. And they say, what? And he throws his staff down and becomes a serpent and he picks it back up. And, okay, that's going to validate the call, isn't it? How else would we explain the miracle? Now, in the same narrative, there's another type of sign. In Exodus 3, while God is calling Moses to Pharaoh, in verse 11, uh, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, to this God replied in verse 12, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. See, this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, this is going to be the sign for Moses. 
But you see, Moses is going to have to be successful here before he's going to see that sign fulfilled, isn't he? (laughs) It's a different type of sign. It's a different type. I mean, Moses is going to have to wait until this thing, whole thing goes down. And then when he finds himself on, uh, on this mountain, worshiping with Israel, then, oh, I'm sure that was, that, I'm sure that was a, one of those special moments between Moses and the Lord when he found himself there and he realized that this sign has come to pass. Now, it's this second type of sign that God has given Ahaz in the house of David here. It's not going to be until things turn out the way the Lord says they're turning out that uh, this sign is going to uh, come to fruition. I mean, uh, and the problem with this is for the unbelieving, it's too late. It's too late. I mean, this makes me think of a conversation I had years ago with a businessman in Pennsylvania. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I got the opportunity to share the gospel with him. I began to share the gospel with him and I was really inwardly very excited because I felt like I was getting somewhere with him. And then, like, I never saw it coming. It was like, like that, all at once. He interrupted and said, listen, we're going to get through this life first, then we'll worry about the next life. Well, this is going to be too late. You see, it's going to be, it's just going to be too late. I mean, if we wait until death to find out if God's word is true, well, then it's going to be too late. Notice what comes next. God provides a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 14, right? Our famous verse. But look at verses 15 and 16. Not so famous. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Here we see the complexity of this. This is a real complicated passage of Scripture, by the way. Uh, that might be one of the reasons why it's not expounded on that much. A lot of ink has been spilled on it. This is a pretty complicated matter here. If we look at verses 15 and 16, these verses lead us to believe that the birth of this child, who is called Emmanuel, is going to be really happening now, in the days of Ahaz. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, he will eat curds and honey. For he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For the boy knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread. This all sounds like it's to be happening right now, doesn't it? But as New Testament believers, we just read the passage earlier in our service in, in Matthew chapter 1. This, the, 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 the true fulfillment of this passage doesn't happen for centuries and centuries and centuries, does it? I mean... So what do we do with this? I mean, what do we do with the context of Isaiah? Well, I want to I want to share with you there's a tension here. A tension between the immediate and and the future. And it's a tension that Isaiah does nothing to try uh, to alleviate. Uh, he throws it out there and it's it's left there. Uh, Isaiah doesn't do anything to try to uh, take it away. Uh, in essence, Isaiah is saying this, and about the time frame that it takes for a child to be born and to grow to the point that he knows right from wrong, uh, the kings of Syria and Israel, they'll, they'll, they'll come to nothing. And from the history books, we know that about three years after this, uh, Damascus, the, the capital of Syria, is, is taken by Assyria. And about 13 years later, Israel is 
Israel is completely wiped out to where it's no longer a nation. That is the northern tribes. And this happens at the hand of uh, Assyria. Uh, uh, you, you can read about that. It, it, it'll break your heart when you do. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible time of uh, destruction. It happens about 13 years later. But there's something else here. If you look at verse 17, notice the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That would be the... Uh, the division after King Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes the throne and then the, 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 uh, the country is divided between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Um, but notice that last little caveat there at the end, uh, the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria. Now, Ahaz would have understood this. And he wouldn't have liked it. Because it was a stinging rebuke. When Ahaz found out that the kings in the north were coming down to sack Judah, which would have meant his execution. Did he fall on his knees and pray out to God and say, God save me? No. He called up Assyria. And he said, Assyria, help me. And he went into the temple treasuries and he stole a bunch of gold and silver and he shipped it up to Assyria. He trusted in the king of Assyria. And God is telling Ahaz, this was a fatal decision. Assyria can't be trusted. They can't be trusted. They're going to turn on you. But he tells them they will not completely succeed. But here is where the significance of all of this comes into play. Ahaz is the last king in Jerusalem who really, for all intents and purposes, has any type of political sovereignty to speak of. From this point on, from a political standpoint, the kings that occupy David's throne were just puppet kings. And of course, Assyria comes and Assyria goes. Babylon comes, Babylon goes. Persia comes, Persia goes. Greece comes, Greece goes. And now we come to the time of Rome and put yourself in Mary and Joseph's place centuries later. Centuries, centuries later. And put yourself in the place of the true believing believing Israelites centuries later. And along comes the angel Gabriel and he announces to Mary that you're going to be with child. And Mary says, how can I be with child? I'm... I've never known a man. I've never been with a man. How's that going to be? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you, Mary. You're going to conceive. You're going to, you're going to bear a child. And his name will be Jesus. Do you realize what Gabriel is saying to Mary? He's saying, you're the virgin. Now, you know, along this time, Joseph, her fiancé, finds out that she's pregnant. And um, what does he want to do? We read the passage earlier. He wants to divorce her. He wants to do it quietly. He doesn't want a lot of noise made about it, but he's out. And in a dream, the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, uh, don't don't divorce 
Mary. She's the virgin. She's the virgin. She will conceive. She will bear the son. And he will be Emmanuel. And let me share a couple of words in closing about what this meant for Jesus. And we're going to talk a little, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But what does this mean for, for Jesus? Well, in the United States, when a new president takes office, we hear a lot of rhetoric about the mess that the new president inherits from the old president, right? We, we, every time, it doesn't matter who the presidents are, every time a new president comes in, you hear a lot of rhetoric about the mess that the new president inherits from the old. Um, go back to verse 15. I, Isaiah said to Ahaz concerning Emmanuel that he shall eat curds and honey. What's that all about? It's a strange kind of thing. Well, this is a prophecy of poverty. It's a prophecy of poverty. Jesus, Emmanuel, the son of David, heir to David's throne, was born into what? Poverty. You ever wonder why? Why was he born into poverty? It's because Ahaz. Jesus inherits the mess from the previous administration. He is heir to a throne that hasn't existed on the political scene for centuries. This is the mess that Jesus inherits. And by unbelief, the house of David has come to ruins. It has come to ruins and it is this house of ruins that Jesus has come to build. And I think now we're able to see the joy of the angels' announcements to the shepherds. Let's go to another Christmas story, you know. There are these shepherds. Jesus has been born in the manger and there's these shepherds, you know, out in the wilderness. And and the angels come to the shepherds and they say in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Oh my goodness. Behold, the virgin has born a son. And he's just right over the hill. He's Emmanuel. What does this mean? Oh, house of David in ruins. God has come to rebuild you. And what does this mean for fallen sinners beyond the house of David? What does this mean for fallen sinners? What's it mean for us? Christ has come to us as ruined sinners to rebuild us. This is the message of Christmas, friends. This is really the message of Christmas, isn't it? This should cast away all anxiety. Emmanuel, God with us. And I leave you with verse 9. The end of verse 9. See the, see the little phrase in verse 9. If you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be firm at all. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we truly feel the force. We feel the force of these passages afresh this morning, and for that we are grateful. And we look to you that you are a God who makes promises, and though you may tarry for centuries as you did in this one, you are a faithful God who comes through with those promises. Father, it wets our eyes with tears to know that, Father, we are so much like the unfaithful house of David. Oh, Father, we are exactly like them. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have come for us and you've come to rebuild us. Oh, Father, make us firm in the faith that, that we would be that we would be positively established, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.